0: Hey there, this is Devin from Legal Eagle. You're smart, and I know that you're smart because you're listening to this podcast. But if you want even more incredible, educational-ish content from me and my friends, then you've got to get Nebula. Because in addition to offering tons of terrific podcasts ad-free, Nebula is a place where my friends and I get to release tons of experimental and exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. Plus, all of my videos are ad-free. Just head to watchnebula.com slash Legal Eagle Radio to sign up now. Look, I am as surprised as anyone that Florida isn't the swing state in the 2020 election, nor is there any kind of Floridian, Bush v. Gore style lawsuit that seems like it's going to change the outcome of the election, which is especially surprising given that we have a literal Florida man in the White House. There is no election chaos in Florida. Why did Florida get its act together while smaller states took days and even weeks to finalize their votes and the vote is still currently ongoing? Because Florida let counties start counting early votes and mailed ballots 22 days before the election day. And while this seems like basic common sense, not all states took this common sense dare I say, Floridian approach to vote counting. So while the counting continues, President Trump and his campaign and affiliated groups have filed several lawsuits challenging many aspects of the voting process in the 2020 election. So today we are going to examine how these election lawsuits work. Do any of the Trump campaign's lawsuits stand a chance of getting to the Supreme Court? And are any of these lawsuits going to change the outcome of the election? Hey, Legal Eagles, it's time to think like the Trump campaign's lawyers. As we've talked about many times on this channel, you can sue anyone for anything at any time for any reason in America. But those claims need to have a legal basis and eventually you'll need to provide evidence, otherwise those lawsuits will be thrown out. Now, maybe I am an institutionalist big firm lawyer, but I think there is a silver lining to all of these lawsuits, whether they have merit or not. There are a lot of people who have doubts about the 2020 election, whether those doubts are well-founded or not. So it's important for those doubts to be tested. That's how we have confidence in the whole election process in general. And the courts have mechanisms for dealing with both meritorious claims and frivolous claims. And if the claims are frivolous, then they will be thrown out. And if they have merit, then the courts will fashion a remedy. And I think that if the shoe was on the other foot, that uh, it was clear that the uh, Trump campaign had won the election, Democrats would want to know if there was foul play involved or not. And that's what the system is designed to do. But as it happens, Joe Biden is the punitive president-elect, and it appears that Donald Trump is going to be a one-term president, which, means that the balance of the lawsuits are going to come from the Trump campaign uh, in an attempt to, if not outright change the outcome of the election, then at least take a deeper dive and let's say uh, graciously uh, make sure that everything was on the up and up. Now, before we dig into these different state lawsuits, it's important to recognize that every state has a different law when it comes to how the elections are going to be run. Some require that ballots have to be received before election day. Some have a law that say, it, as long as the ballot is postmarked by election day, it will be accepted. So uh, there's no overarching federal law. Every state has a different law, and sometimes these laws are sort of contradictory so that it's, Uh, a complete patchwork of laws throughout the country. Now, not all of these election lawsuits are created equal. Uh, In fact, some have already been dismissed. And these lawsuits so far have fallen into two categories. One are claims of fraud, and then two are claims of poll watchers not being able to adequately observe the whole process itself. The fraud claims have so far generally been roundly rejected and disproved, while the observation suits have gained some traction. We'll start relatively chronologically, starting with some of the suits that have already been bounced, and then we'll end with the most consequential lawsuit that may in fact end up in the Supreme Court, uh, those stemming out of Pennsylvania. And at the end of this video, I will summarize what effect these lawsuits are likely to have on the outcome of the 2020 election. But we'll start with Georgia where there was a challenge to the counting of votes in Chatham County. Now you would think that if you are trying to dispute an election through a lawsuit, you would be trying to disallow votes that had been counted. But currently there's only one lawsuit that is directly challenged in the counting of identified ballots. Uh, On November 4th, the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit alleging that Chatham County, Georgia was accepting absentee ballots after the state's statutory deadline. This would make those ballots invalid, which means that they wouldn't count, obviously. This lawsuit challenged the way that Chatham County was applying the Georgia law concerning absentee ballots. Under that law, votes by mail that are received after 7 p.m. on election day will be kept unopened and transferred to storage where they will eventually be destroyed. The Trump campaign provided an affidavit from someone claiming to be a poll watcher who claimed that 53 absentee ballots had been placed in a group of ballots to be processed. The poll watcher claimed that those 53 ballots arrived after the deadline. However, the poll watcher offered no actual proof of this allegation and wasn't present when the ballot were processed. Chatham County is home to Savannah, an area where there are more Democrats than Republicans. And after a one-hour hearing, the judge dismissed the case with a one-paragraph order explaining that the Trump campaign didn't have any evidence to support its factual claims. Now, there will probably be a recount in Georgia, and that process will include examining the kinds of errors that the Trump campaign alleged uh, made these ballots defective. But as you can see, this will entail a close reading of the state election laws uh, and then a determination about which ballots are valid and when those ballots were received. This might change the final vote count, but there's probably not enough impact here to change the results in Georgia. Georgia's probably the only state where the final vote could be challenged due to the problems uh, with ballots. But keep in mind, however, that voters are already curing uh, defects in some of these ballots. And so where the actual vote tally is going to end up in terms of more votes for Trump or fewer votes for Trump is anyone's guess. And it's possible that the Trump campaign might file lawsuits challenging the state's process for curing ballots, but those cases seem unlikely to end up in the Supreme Court or have a a number that's appreciably going to change the difference. So we move on to Michigan, where there was a lawsuit about poll observers. Now, Joe Biden is the projected winner in Michigan. And on November 4th, the Trump campaign and Republican self-appointed poll challenger, Eric Ostergren sued Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, in the Michigan Court of Claims. The lawsuit claims that Ostergren was excluded from watching the absentee ballot counting board and that the state had violated the Michigan constitution and Michigan election law by processing ballots without allowing poll watchers to view video footage of voters placing ballots in drop boxes. Now, the Trump campaign asked the court to one, stop the counting of absentee ballots until an election inspector from each party was present at each absentee counting board and until video was made available to challengers of each ballot box. And two, immediately set aside all ballots that were not being, quote, inspected and monitored as described. Ostergren's claim was dismissed by the court because he claimed he was removed from an absent voter counting board, but didn't identify which board or which official removed him from the board. This means that he didn't sue the proper defendant and his claim failed at step one, which is stating a claim for legal relief. But the lawsuit did include affidavits from poll watchers alleging that they had heard people talking about fraud. For example, poll watcher Jessica Cornyn said that another poll worker told her that she had heard other poll workers say that they could change the date on ballots when they were received and entering them into the computer. And when you're asking for extraordinary relief, like what a lot of these election lawsuits are asking for, you need to have generally extremely strong evidence. And here that evidence just wasn't there. There was no verification of the facts through evidence and a lot of the evidence was not admissible. The case was dismissed by Michigan State Court on November 6th. And admittedly, I chuckled when a lot, some of my Twitter followers pointed out that this is one of the few cases where hearsay evidence was not admitted, and rightfully so. We have examples of double and triple hearsay with no exceptions to the hearsay rule. And it made sense that a lot of this evidence was not admitted. And the judge found that, quote, the assertion that the affiant was informed by an unknown individual, what, quote, other hired poll workers at her table had been told is inadmissible hearsay within hearsay and plaintiffs have provided no hearsay exception for either level of hearsay that would warrant consideration of the evidence, see MRE 801, which is the Michigan version of the rules of evidence. Now, a lot of these cases sought TROs or PIs, temporary restraining orders or preliminary injunctions, which is basically an early order from the court uh, seeking to maintain the status quo while the rest of the case can be litigated. Now, we talk a lot on this channel about how you often don't need to provide evidence when you file a lawsuit, but to get a TRO or a PI, you do, have to provide usually very strong evidence. You'll often hear about a verified complaint. Well, a verified complaint just means a complaint with actual evidence attached to it. But at this TRO or PI stage, a court will often test that evidence. So a lot of times when you're seeing the courts weighing evidence in these cases, it's because the cases are asking for a TRO or a PI. Which takes us to the next Michigan lawsuit, which sought a decertification of the election results. The Republican party wanted an injunction barring Wayne County from certifying any results until representatives of both parties examined all ballots. They also requested that all ballot containers be unsealed and prepared for inspection and that they be permitted to take depositions of local officials. A judge denied their application for an injunction. Now, the Michigan law appears to allow for local city clerks to appoint Democratic and Republican inspectors who can observe the counting process, that's not in dispute. The judge found, quote, both Republican and Democratic inspectors were present throughout the absent voter counting board location. The court said that the plaintiffs had failed to even state a cause of action, simply asserting widespread fraud was not sufficient. The court stated the only substantive allegation appears in paragraph 15 of the first Amendment complaint, where plaintiffs allege on information and belief that hundreds or thousands of ballots have been impacted by this improper practice. Plaintiffs supplemental motion fails to present any further specifics. In short, the motion is based upon speculation and conjecture. And as anyone who watches The Simpsons knows, we've got plenty of hearsay and conjecture. Those are kinds of evidence. They're just not allowed in court. So this lawsuit seemed to follow the general pattern established uh, in the Michigan lawsuits where the Trump campaign was making serious claims about fraud without any particularized evidence, uh, claiming that Republicans had been denied the opportunity to observe the count, even though it seemed that the contradictory evidence showed that in fact they were present and that there were impartial observers. And the thing about these poll observer lawsuits is that even if a judge sided with the claims of the GOP that certain poll watchers were not treated fairly or that they were excluded, which seems relatively suspect, but even taking it at face value, if that were true, it's unlikely that any judge would invalidate the election because just because observers weren't there or were too far away, doesn't mean that anything untoward was happening. So without evidence of actual widespread ballot fraud, uh, it's unlikely a court is going to invalidate a single ballot, let alone uh, the entire election. And interestingly, the appeal of this Michigan case was already rejected for failing to file basic documents with the appeal. Things like attaching the judgment that they're appealing and the transcript of the case and the evidence. A big firm associate would be fired for making these kind of mistakes, so that might be an indication of the kind of uh, quality of legal representation that's uh, responsible for the Michigan cases. So that takes us to the great state of Nevada. Now in Nevada, Republicans filed a single federal lawsuit lumping several claims together. The alleged irregularities included uh, what the complaint described as lax procedures for authenticating mailed ballots and claiming that more than 3,000 ineligible voters have cast a ballot. One plaintiff is Jill Stoke, a registered voter who's 79 years old and legally blind. Stoke claimed that on election day, she went to vote in person, but was told that her ballot had already been received by election officials, and her signature was already verified. Election officials met with her and said that the signature on her ballot matched the signature that they had on file, and since Stoke disputed that it was her ballot, the county still gave Stoke the option to challenge her verified mail-in ballot and cast a provisional ballot instead, but she refused to cast a provisional ballot. The Nevada Secretary of State investigated her claim on November 3rd. Stoke told them that a person who had been evicted from her home had probably stolen her ballot and turned it in, but she didn't want to name that person and subject them to criminal charges. A Nevada election official tried to persuade Stoke to name the person, make a formal statement, and vote by a provisional ballot, but she refused. The Nevada official also told Stoke that if she cast another ballot, she would have double voted, which is a crime. Stoke then contacted the Trump campaign and the media. Now, it seems that Stokes' claims failed at the evidentiary stage of the process. Her lawsuit claims that she was turned away from the polls on November 3rd, but documents released by the states show that she talked to local officials about the stolen ballot on October 28th during the early voting process. The Stokes' allegations are particularly egregious because her lawsuit and declaration do not even say that the ballot was stolen, but that's what the Trump campaign tweeted out, which made her sort of an internet star. A federal judge held a two-hour hearing to assess her claims and found them to be lacking. He also warned Stokes' lawyer that she she might have committed perjury. The judge also noted that the remedy that Stokes sought, an immediate halt to counting all the votes, bore no relationship to her legal claims. The lawsuit also alleges that Clark County's automated signature verification machine operates below manufacturer specifications and that use of the machine violates requirements in state election law. The Trump campaign already raised this same claim in a separate lawsuit, which was dismissed a week before the election. In this complaint, the plaintiffs claim that the use of the machine is impermissible under Nevada election code and therefore violates the elections clause of the US constitution and that Clark County's use of the machine constitutes an equal protection violation. But there doesn't appear to be much merit in these claims. Nevada law authorizes counties to adopt procedures that include the processing and counting of mailed ballots by electronic means. The Clark County Register opted to use the sorting machine to increase the efficiency with which the mailed ballots were processed. And the machine uh, makes the first pass on the sorting of ballots to ensure the signature on the ballot matches the signature of the registration. But if the machine flags a ballot for a mismatch, then a person then reviews the ballot. The plaintiffs uh, allege that the process is faulty because the machine uh, does the initial pass rather than the person. However, Clark County's process appears to comply with Nevada law. Before a ballot can be rejected, at least two employees in the office of the clerk must agree that there is a reasonable question of fact as to whether the signature used for the mailed ballot matches the signature of the voter. Here, the machine does not make the final decision about whether a ballot will be rejected or not. A federal judge dismissed the claim, stating that Nevada law allows for the use of machines in tabulating votes and doesn't specifically forbid signature comparison devices. The lawsuit also includes a poll observer component. Here, a man named Chris Prudhomme, uh, who the lawsuit describes as a credentialed member of the media, also sued Clark County officials. However, it appears that Prudhomme is actually a senior advisor to the state Republican party. And Prudhomme says that officials didn't let him observe ballot counting when he arrived at 12.45 a.m. The county officials simply said that the counting was over for the evening. Prudhomme's declaration, which is the evidence submitted to the court in support of the claim, said that he was then improperly told to leave the area. While Prudhomme alleges that he was blocked from observing the poll counting, Clark County attorney Marianne Miller testified that he was actually removed for trying to record the voting counting process, which is not allowed. Prudhomme also says that he was forced to sit too far away from the action. He also alleges that it was illegal for poll workers to be behind a glass partition, which makes it hard for observers to hear what the workers were saying. Uh, However, at the hearing, Judge Gordon through cold water on Prudhomme's complaints. For mail ballots, Nevada law says that once the counting board begins counting ballots, quote, the counting procedure must be public. At oral argument, the judge said, you're asking me to impose some new standard restrictions or guidelines. Do we have to provide microphones? At what point does it get into the ridiculous? Of course, Nevada law does allow people to have meaningful public access to vote counting. Here, the judge essentially ruled that the counting procedure was public and that Prudhomme observed it. And in Nevada, a lot of these claims of fraud are already evaporating. People were claiming that there were votes associated with dead people. It appears that most of these are probably related to service members who since moved after voting, which comports with a video I did on election fraud. It's usually just clerical errors. So, that takes us to Pennsylvania, which is likely home to the most consequential election lawsuits for several reasons. First, given how close the election is and how many electoral votes are available in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is sort of the equivalent of uh, 2000 Florida in this particular election. And on top of that, the lawsuits in Florida have already gotten the attention of the US Supreme Court. So, let's look at the different facets of these uh, election lawsuits. The first concerns late-arriving ballots. The most high Profile case in Pennsylvania involves ballots arriving after the state's deadline for receipt for mailed ballots. This is also the only case currently before the Supreme Court. Well, it's sort of in front of the Supreme Court, which we'll get to. The case began when the Pennsylvania Democratic Party filed a lawsuit that challenged parts of the state's absentee ballot system in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is long before the actual election. Relying on a provision in the state's constitution, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the deadline for mailed in ballots until November 6th. As it stands now, ballots that are clearly postmarked after the election would not be counted under the Pennsylvania court's ruling. Ballots postmarked on or before election day and ballots with no postmark or an unclear postmark would be counted if received by the new deadline. However, Republicans objected to the extending of the deadline from November 3rd to November 6th, so they filed a separate case in federal courts. On September 28th, Republican legislators and the Pennsylvania Republican Party asked the Supreme Court to put the Pennsylvania Court's ruling on hold. The US Supreme Court declined to hear the case before the election. However, four justices explicitly left open the possibility of reconsidering the case after the vote. But since the Supreme Court left the door open, Pennsylvania officials decided to play it safe and segregate the ballots that were postmarked on or before the election day, which arrived up to uh, November 6th. These are uh, postmarked before election, but arrive after election day. And on October 28th, 2020, Kelly Buchvarb, Secretary of the Commonwealth, issued a memorandum to that effect, requiring all counties to sequester those late arriving ballots, which would then be counted after all the other votes were processed. Now, just because they were counted didn't mean necessarily that they would eventually be added to the total vote count in Pennsylvania. That was still up in the air. But three days after the election on November 6th, the Trump campaign moved to intervene as a plaintiff in the case. The Trump campaign asked the Supreme Court, uh, seeking an emergency order that all the ballots be sequestered and not counted. The Trump campaign alleged that it did not know whether all counties were following the procedure set forth in Bookfar's memo. Now, most emergency applications of public significance are addressed by the full Supreme Court, although particularly urgent matters are sometimes acted on by a single justice while the other justices are later asked to weigh in. Here, Justice Alito chose Chose to do exactly that, saying that he was referring the issue to his colleagues for further action. And in the meantime, he issued an order requiring that the ballots be sequestered, which again, at least if all the counties were following the order of the Secretary of the Commonwealth, they already were. But Alito also rejected the request that the ballots not be counted. And on November 7th, 2020, Pennsylvania responded to the Trump campaign's allegations that some counties were not appropriately sequestering the ballots, saying, quote, there is no evidence that any county is." disobeying the clear guidance to segregate these votes. And the Republican party offers only speculation that certain unidentified counties may ignore the repeated guidance or that the secretary will inconsistently change course. So if the US Supreme Court reversed the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling, it would in fact invalidate ballots received after election day. The exact number of these ballots is unknown. However, the impact of this decision will almost certainly not be decisive. Pennsylvania counties have been sequestering the late arriving ballots and will count them last. And there probably aren't enough ballots which arrived up to three days after the election to make up the vote differential if they even favored the president, which is an open question. So that takes us to the Pennsylvania cases challenging the ballot cure process. There are still more cases pending in Pennsylvania. These cases challenge the state's process for allowing voters to cure their ballots. The cure process was mandated by the Help America Vote Act of 2002, or HAVA the federal law requires states to allow voters to cure potential errors on their ballots. And here's how that works. When there's an uncertainty about a voter's eligibility, such as an incorrect address, the absence of required identification or other issues, the election official is required to offer the voter a provisional ballot instead of a regular ballot. If a voter votes in person, they can ask for a provisional ballot or they may be directed by a poll worker to vote by a provisional ballot. Since so many voters used a mailed in ballot this year, several states have created a process for these voters to fix certain errors in mailed ballots, like a missing or mismatched voter signature. Once a provisional ballot is cast, it's stored separately from the other ballots and investigated by local election officials. Generally, a poll worker will have to verify the voter's identity and eligibility to vote and may require the voter to provide further information. The states give the voters the opportunity to cure those defective ballots, and each state has its own deadline for voters who need to cure their ballots. Here, Republicans are raising criticisms of the state's processes for curing ballots. So the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee have now sued Bookvar, who we just talked about, claiming that she improperly extended the deadline for absentee and mail-in votes to provide any missing proof of identification from November 9th to November 12th. This is a challenge to the state's cure process for absentee ballots. The Republicans contend that it's wrong for the state to give voters a few extra days to cure deficiencies. A judge ordered Bookvar to segregate mailed in ballots from voters providing identification between November 10th and November 12th, saying that she would rule later on the validity of this deadline extension. And it's unlikely that the cured ballot issue will determine the result in Pennsylvania since these votes are not appearing in the vote totals yet, and most voters would not have even attempted to cure these ballots. But again, we're talking about a pretty small number of ballots here, and it's going to be a relatively easy decision to see whether the court approves of the deadline extension or not. Additionally, Republican candidates and officials also sued election officials in Montgomery County, a heavily Democratic-leaning suburb of Philadelphia, from notifying voters and helping them to cure defective votes plaintiffs withdrew their request for an emergency order segregating such votes just days after filing the complaint. And the judge said that the case lacked merit and failed to state a viable claim. The bottom line in this case is that the voters had the right to cure their ballots provided that they follow state requirements. And the plaintiffs couldn't come up with a way that the cure process was violated law in Montgomery County. Which takes us finally to the poll observer lawsuits in Pennsylvania, which are not dissimilar from some of the other poll observer lawsuits that we saw, though uh, some of the outcomes of these cases show what happens when you piss off a federal judge. In the first case, uh, the Trump campaign continued to file cases claiming that there were deficiencies in how poll observers were treated. The campaign successfully sued Philadelphia on election day, asserting that its poll watchers weren't being given quote, reasonable access to monitor the counting of votes in Philadelphia because they were kept at too far a distance from the process. The suit was dismissed by a Philadelphia trial court, but an appellate court reversed, ordering officials to allow all poll observers to watch the ballot counting which frankly seems like a win for all of us. We need both partisan and neutral observers to make sure that the election process is working as it should and there's no foul play so that we can all have confidence that the democratic process was working. The only thing unusual is that they were seeking to invalidate the ballots, but as far as I can tell, no court has ever thrown out ballots because poll watchers were sitting too far away. Which finally takes us to the last election lawsuit in Pennsylvania, where the Trump campaign filed an emergency request in the federal court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania to stop the Philadelphia County Board of Electors from quote, continuing to count any ballots so long as Republican observers are not present as required by state law. And here the plaintiffs ran into an irascible federal judge who simply wasn't having allegations with no factual basis. Here, federal Judge Diamond asks, are your observers in the counting room? To which the Trump campaign replied in oral argument, there is a non-zero number of people in the room. (laughs) To which Judge Diamond uh, responded, I'm asking you as a member of the bar of this court, are people representing the Donald J. Trump for president, representing the plaintiffs in that room? To which the Trump campaign lawyer responded, yes. And Diamond said, I'm sorry, then what's your problem? So here's the thing. When a federal judge asks you to respond uh, as a member of this court, what he or she is signaling to you is that you had better not lie because the judge is pissed off and if you lie, it is a violation of your uh, lawyerly ethics to respond to any tribunal in a honest manner and you might be referred to bar counsel and the judge will basically take it as a personal offense. So if you ever get that question in a federal court, you're not in a very good position. Now, although the Trump campaign continues to assert in public that the counting process is happening in secret without any Republicans present, when they're in court uh, in front of the judge, that's not what they're saying, and it appears because that's just not true. The parties in the case agreed, after Judge Diamond suggested it, that each party gets 60 observers in all areas where ballots were being counted. The judge agreed that observers were allowed, but not at a certain distance, only at an equal amount away. So this means that there are 120 people watching all the votes being counted in Philadelphia, and the city also has live-streamed the entire vote count. You can actually find this on YouTube and enjoy watching poll workers putting ballots in the machine all night long. So while the case settled and might be considered a win for the Trump campaign, really it's a a win for everyone to make sure that there are an acceptable number of observers watching the whole process. It's hard not to get behind that. And finally, there is a brand new lawsuit in Pennsylvania as of November 9th. It basically claims that mail-in voting is unconstitutional. It claims that mail-in ballots were not signature verified to the same extent as the in-person votes, creating a two-tiered system that's a constitutional violation. It also rehashes the same allegations of late received ballots and lack of observers, blah, blah, blah. It's likely to fail pretty hard, uh, but they are swinging for the fences. You have to give them credit for that. They are asking for the court to prevent Pennsylvania from certifying results. So that is terrifyingly hilarious, or hilariously terrifying, you choose which. But at the end of the day, none of the cases involve challenges to enough states in any of the states to change the results, let alone change the results in several of the states. And at the time of this recording, it looks like Joe Biden's going to win 306 electoral votes. In the year 2000, it was very different. The election came down to a recount in a single state where there were only 500 votes separating the two candidates. So a single court case could decide the outcome of a huge state with lots of electoral votes. Here, there are just too many states that would need to flip. And of course, there are reports that the president is very unhappy with his legal team. That seems to be run by Jared Kushner. Man, is there anything that that kid can't do? And also the head of uh, Citizens United, David Bossie, who actually isn't a lawyer. I can't imagine why the president is not happy with his legal representation. And there doesn't seem to be any real coordinated legal strategy here. There's nothing here that's going to turn the tide and there's no common theme throughout these lawsuits that's going to... Uh, change the outcome of the entire 2020 election. As Maggie Hamerman of the New York Times put it, this is a media campaign masquerading as a legal campaign until proven otherwise. That seems to be about right. And not for nothing, the Trump campaign's claims outside of the court are very different from the claims they are making in court because often you have to make these claims under the penalty of perjury and the lawyers themselves have certain ethical bounds and also there are potential sanctions for filing frivolous lawsuits and putting things before the court that have a lack of complete basis. And none of these lawsuits are likely to change the outcome of the election. The Trump campaign would have to file and win lawsuits concerning far more ballots than he's litigating now. And uh, none of these lawsuits would be able to overturn the disparity in the various states. And the same goes for recounts. Now, some states require the objector to pay for the recount itself. Uh, so we'll see if the Trump campaign actually ponies up the money to do that. But no federal recount has ever changed the results by more than uh, one tenth of a percent. And the Trump campaign would need to win uh, lawsuits in multiple states and swing 18 electoral electoral votes, a minimum of three states. And that just doesn't seem like it's in the realm of possibility.